good morning. We will continue our study in uh, the book of Acts. So if you have your scripture, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 28. This will be our second to last uh, sermon in this series. Uh, Next week will be our last sermon in the book of Acts. And as we finish up um, our study, uh, next week we'll take some time to do a little bit of review and look at the beautiful journey uh, that we've been on for the last um, over two years now. We started early uh, 2017 in our study of Acts, and we're going to end it here next week. So today we will be in chapter 28, but last week we took a look at this a little bit of a dramatic image of, 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 of Paul on this journey to Rome, and there's this uh, storm that comes upon the ship, and they, they, they struggle uh, to, to get through that event, and what had happened was uh, the ship was beginning to be broken apart and was starting to sink, and everyone was freaking out, and Paul stood up and he said, he says, he says take heart. Uh, he says, for the Lord has appeared to me and, and basically promised that none of you will be lost. Not a single hair from your head will be lost. And, and so there's this, this vision given. Paul does not stand up and say, take heart, I have a plan. Remember, he also didn't, he didn't stand up and say, take heart, it looks like the storm is letting up. He didn't say that. He said, take heart, for I have a word from the Lord that we will be spared. And, and he says, I have faith in my God in whom I worship. Uh, that it will be as he said it will be. Uh, And we saw that. But what had happened was that there was also, with this promise of obedience, uh, action that was required on their part. They couldn't just sit back and say, okay, that's the word from God. We've got this promise. We believe it. Let's just see how this all plays out. That wasn't how it happened. What they had to do is they had to take practical steps to bring about what God had promised. That wasn't them working, them making that happen. God was ultimately in control of that, but what we see is that they took the responsibility to move. And so we see that even though we're trusting in the providence of God, it doesn't mean that we sit back and do nothing. And so what did we see uh, Paul and the other 275 people on board do? They were doing things uh, to make it less likely that they would die out there. Some of those things were that they were, uh, they were supporting the ship. Some of the things were they were throwing the tackle and the luggage overboard to lighten the load. What else did they do? After 14 days, 14 days of this struggle, Paul stood up and said, let's eat something. It's been 14 days and we haven't eaten anything. So once again, not just sitting back and relying on the providence of God and saying, I have to do nothing here. No, they had to care for themselves. And so after 14 days, they had a meal. And then what was the very next thing that they did? Throw the food overboard. Why? To lighten the load. And then they got to this really pinnacle point in this whole journey where they're like, you know what? Let's take the lifeboat. Let's get the lifeboat. Let's go. And Paul said, if you leave, you will die. Every one of you must stay on this ship. And the idea is that we have to trust in God. And we have to recognize the ways in which we are not trusting God. And we have to recognize and ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ a sufficient Savior or do we have a plan B? And what we have to do is we have to identify the lifeboats in our lives that we are actually trusting in rather in Christ. And so last week we ended with that, that, that mental picture of standing on this ship that's being broken apart by the storm. And God has told us to stay, to trust in him, 
But then we identify that lifeboat called self-righteousness. And we think to ourselves, I'm better than a lot of other people. I don't need Jesus as much as some do. And we're hoping a little bit in that lifeboat called self-righteousness, where that self-righteousness boat may change its name and it may look like good works. And we say, you know what, I've got some good works, and based on my good works, that'll save me. Or maybe we say, I am faithful. I am always showing up to church. I serve the Lord faithfully. But literally, just as they did there, we have to do the same thing. Take that rope, cut it, and let that lifeboat go out into the sea, be crushed and capsized, leaving no hope of saving anyone. And that's what we do, too. We say we trust in God alone, that God alone is worthy of our trust and obedience, and he alone can save. So God brought them safely through that journey. And so that's where we start our our sermon today and our study in the book of Acts. The major doctrine that I'll defend this morning is that not all suffering is a form of justice. Not all suffering is a form of justice. And we'll take a look at three stops here. Malta in America. You may think, what in the world does that mean? But we're going to take a look at Malta in America. And we'll also take a look at serving and suffering. And then third, we'll end with some unpacking of application. All right? So Malta in America, serving and suffering, and then the application. So if you will, uh, stand with me and we'll begin by reading our scripture. Uh, Acts chapter 28, um, and we will... Uh, read through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it began to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he escapes from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off this, this creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and so no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place where the lands belonged to the chief man of the island um, uh, named uh, Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who were diseased also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So we see here that there is this uh, event where they get to this island. Remember that it was uh, basically they ordered everyone who could swim to swim or jump overboard and make for land. And the rest of them uh, were on planks or pieces of the ship. And it was so that they were all brought safely to land. And so we see that God carried through with his promise that no one would die. And so what we see is uh, 276 people show up on this island and they don't know where they are. And they're like, well, there's land. That's all we care about. Let's get to some solid ground, all right? Step one, all right, good. You know, 14 days of moving. I'm sure they were still walking around for a little bit trying to figure out what it's like to walk on a surface that isn't constantly moving beneath you. But step one, where are we? And it says that after we were brought safely through, we learned that the island was called Malta. 
So remember, they're miles and miles away from anything else. They're on this little island. Uh, and it says, The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. All right, so this is, this is an interesting thing because it says the native people. Now, sometimes when we think of native, we always read the scripture through our 21st century American lens. That's, you have to realize that. That's what we're going to do. So when we think of native people, what do we think of? We think of the Native American Indians. That isn't true here. When they would talk about native people, um, the, the Greek word is barbarous or, or barbarian. Why were they barbarians? Because they didn't speak Greek. Back then, if you didn't speak Greek, you were a barbarian by their standards. And so it happens to be that these people uh, were native people, uh, but they were unusually kind. So imagine you, you just got off this shipwreck, you swam to uh, the shore or you rode on a piece of wood uh, and paddled your way there, got off and it's freezing cold, all right, you've been getting wet for over two weeks, and there's 275 of your buddies coming behind you, everyone gets there and it's like, we don't even speak the same language as these people, what are you, you're at their mercy, but then they show you kindness and welcome you and 275 of your friends. Come on, we'll make a fire to warm you. And about that time, it starts to rain. <laughs> right? I mean, you've been soaking wet for two weeks, been fighting this battle in, on a ship, soaked and freezing cold, and now it's cold again and begins to rain. It's like there's no escape, but these people are kind enough to start a fire for you. But I want to unpack this idea uh, that, that, that we have to look at is, is that not all suffering is a form of justice. And I want us to think about Jesus for just a second before we continue to unpack the scripture here. I want to put it on the screen. The incarnation is grace in person. Uh, Jesus came to suffer securing our justice. And I want you to have that in your mind as we get going because we're going to unpack the heart of what was here for these, these people in Malta. And I, when we say Malta in America, there is this idea that this is, this is what happens, uh, is that, that there is some sort of justice that's going to seek you out. And so what we see here is it says, uh, verse 3, when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So imagine, you're Paul, you got off this shipwreck, you're glad to be on land, these people are being very nice, uh, they're starting a fire for you, and you're, you're not too uh, high above getting, getting dirty, doing a little bit of manual work, I'm going to help them out, I'm going to start gathering some sticks, gather up some sticks, and then as you're throwing the sticks in the fire, bam, a snake jumps out, bites you. And what do you do? <laughs> well, they're all looking at you thinking, yep, that's what you get. Because what was Paul? Paul was a prisoner. Paul was not some free guy out on vacation and his cruise ship got into some trouble. He was a prisoner. These people, these barbarians, quickly put it together who these people were. So you're Paul and all these people you don't know, they're looking at you and what do they think about you? That guy probably killed someone. That guy's probably a rapist. That guy's are what they're, they're getting all these ideas, and they have these ideas about Paul. Were they true? No. Doesn't matter. Still got these ideas about him. So when we unpack this idea, Malta in America, I want to put up on the screen, the culture thinks that all suffering is a form of justice. That was present in their culture. 
Uh, and it's the same, same narrative, the same belief that's in our culture. They believe that Paul had escaped death by sea, but he could not escape justice. You got lucky, buddy. You didn't die out there and you weren't drowned by the sea. But you're not going to make it out of here alive because justice always gets his man. And so they see this snake coming out and biting him as a form of justice. That's what we see is the culture thinks all suffering is a force, uh, or excuse me, a form of justice. And so on Malta, I want to throw up on the screen, Malta, what does suffering look like? Uh, Shipwreck and a snake bite. That's the form of justice. In America, it's poverty and bad karma. So on Malta, shipwreck and a snake bite. In America, poverty and bad karma. You know, we tend to believe people are poor because of something they did wrong. Ask yourself, is this something that I've seen before? Is this something maybe I've believed? But it happens that that's what we do is we look at people who are in poverty and we tend to think, what did you do to get there? That is is a, a human response. We tend to think that anyone who is in suffering has done something wrong to get in this tight position. Now, that's not to say that there isn't uh, uh, the need to make a distinction between natural, con- uh, natural consequences and punishment. There are certain things that happened that are natural consequences. If somebody has a gambling habit, and they go and blow all of their money, and they show up and ask for money for to pay their light bill, we're going to ask, <laughs> kind of, how did you get here? Because it may be that there, there really are natural consequences for your actions. I'm not dismissing that at all. But there's a difference between natural consequences and punishment. Punishment is a completely different thing. And sometimes what we see is, uh, is, is just like those in Malta, that when you bring uh, suffering on yourself or you're in some form of, of suffering, we automatically equate it with punishment and we start to see what did you do to get here. So they looked at Paul and they thought Paul must have killed somebody to be in this position. He is a murderer. That's what they say. That's what they believe. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, period. They're like, maybe he's a murderer. I don't know. The verdict you know, still hasn't come in. No doubt he's a murderer. It had been settled. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice, capital J in my translation, has not allowed him to live. Who is Justice. In America, we like to call that karma. A lot of people and a lot of Christians, unfortunately, believe in this thing called karma. There is no such thing as karma. There is no personal being karma that's keeping a record of all the things that you've done good or bad and is planning on repaying you for those. That is completely an unbiblical view of how this all works. But have you said or have you heard someone say, ooh, karma's going to get that person. They did me wrong, but karma's coming for them. People say that, don't they? People believe that. And they say, well, man, no no way. I'm going to take that money. That ain't my money. Uh Uh-uh, I ain't getting karma on me. People people think like that. Karma, who is is he? Where was he born? Where did he come from? How old is he? There is no person, karma. 
just when we talked a few weeks ago about chance. Chance is a mathematical probability. It's an expression of fractions and, and percentages. There's no personal being behind it. And so we said the universe is not left to blind chance, but it's guided by personal providence, by a personal God. So when we look at karma, we have to understand there is no person karma. There is no personal force out there karma, keeping a list of good and bad. So we have to look at this in our own American lens. We like to think that all suffering is a form of justice, and bad karma is going to get you and follow up with you. But what we see, I've got a couple of things I want us to, to have a biblical view of it. According to Scripture, God loves the poor and chose to be born into poverty as the son of a poor carpenter. Was Jesus born into poverty because of his sins? No. That makes no sense at all. But what do we see? We see all throughout Scripture, God loves the poor. God defends the poor. God defends the weak. God looks after them. James said, true religion is this, looking after the widow and orphans, the people who are vulnerable and weak in society. That's true religion. According to Scripture, there is no such thing as karma, right? Vengeance belongs to the Lord, who will one day set all things right. We believe God will deal violently with evil and injustice. God will punish evil. That's not karma's job. Karma will not be there at the last day. Karma's not going to show up and inflict punishment on anyone. God will. So scripture, there is no karma. Vengeance belongs to the Lord who will one day set all things right. According to scripture, not all suffering is a form of justice. Remember Job. But what were, in Job's culture, his friends got around him and said, tell us the truth, Job. Tell us the truth. We're in a circle of trust here and these ashes and pottery and you're scraping your scabs. Tell us the truth. Get it out, man. We're, we're safe. He's like, ah, I've done nothing. <laughs> but that was the cultural narrative. Your suffering is a form of punishment. They believed it with all their heart. It's, it's, it's the theory of retribution. You do good, you get good. You do bad, you get bad. We believe in the theory of retribution. Wrongly. Not all suffering is a form of justice. Job is a clear example of this. But also, recall the question that was put to Jesus. Do you remember uh, in John 9, they said, Was this man born blind because of his sins or his parents' sins? They thought that his blindness was punishment for either his sins or his parents' sins. Do you remember Jesus' response? He says, It was not that this man sinned or his parent, but what? but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So this man's suffering and his blindness up until this point, until Jesus heals him, had nothing to do with whether or not he had sinned or his parents had sinned, but that Jesus Christ might come and demonstrate the works of God and that the works of God would be displayed in him. That's, that's it. So many times Jesus corrects this false teaching. You remember when that tower fell on those people and killed a bunch of people? And they're like, oh, they must have been bad. He's like, no, you aren't any better than those people who died there. But the correcting this false idea that all suffering is a form of justice. In our 
culture, we have this theory of retribution we hold to, we look at karma, we've got to dismiss all of this. And we must be aware of the cultural narratives driving our beliefs and behaviors. I want that on the screen, write that down if you can. We must be aware of the cultural narratives driving our beliefs and our behaviors. This is really important because our theology shows up in our suffering. Do you know that? Your theology will show up in your suffering. You don't got to think too hard when, when, the, when the times are good. Just live and let live. Let's enjoy it. But when the suffering comes, your theology will show up. So be aware of that truth, but be aware that the cultural narratives are driving our beliefs and our behaviors. And culture is both caught and taught. So we catch culture from our family, from friends, from the media, from lots of different places. We catch culture. You know, in the, in the workplace, uh, you like to, you know, okay, here's, here's a rule book, or here's a handbook, and here's, here's culture. You can write it down. Here's the five bullet points of our culture. Is, is that really what our new employees are going to refer to? No. In a church setting, when you get new members and we say, this is our culture, these are our values, and here's the piece of paper, look back at that piece of paper. Is that what they're going to do? No, they're going to go, where's the real culture at? And they're going to catch it like a cold. It's taught and it's caught. We have to be aware of that. So I want to put a couple of things in our heads as we wrestle through this, making sense of suffering uh, here under this heading of Malta in America, that, that, that we, we, will, we will catch it and we will teach it. And, and there's, there's a lot of things, right? So um, our, in, in our culture, there's, there's laws. We, we legislate our view of morality, uh, the industries we invest in. So I want to put up on the screen, the culture you promote is found in what you praise and blame, punish and permit. The culture you promote is found in what you praise and blame, punish and permit. So I've got a couple of, of, of questions for you, three questions. First one has to do with our families. What do we praise and shame? In our families, what do we praise and shame? That's an indicator of the culture you keep. That's, the, that's an indicator of the culture you're fostering in your family. What do you praise and what do you shame? It will not take long for your children to catch on. They're looking. They're watching. Oh, brother got punished for that. Mm, better not do that. Oh, brother got praised for that. I'm going to do that. You see that. What do you, what do you promote through punishing or praising? What do you praise? What do you shame? Laws reflect the morality of our culture. What do we punish and permit? If someone from another country came into America and started to look at our laws, they would get the idea of our culture pretty quick, wouldn't they? What do these people punish and what do they permit? That's why we're fighting tooth and nail for things like abortion. That's why we're fighting tooth and nail for same-sex marriage. We're, we're on the side of it. We're saying that's not biblical. Why? Because those laws represent our cultural narrative. What do we punish and what do we permit? And we come to the scripture and say, what should we punish? What should we permit? That's our standard, our timeless standard for morality. So we struggle with that. But I want to also ask a third question. Um, where are you going to school and who is your favorite teacher? 
You may think, I've graduated a long time ago, but that's not the case. We're all going to school. Music, TV, movies, all of these things teach us culture. Do you know how dangerous it is to just nonstop be ingesting and intaking that stuff? You are literally going to school. You are literally following your favorite teacher. I can tell you in my life there's been times where I said, you know what, I know I shouldn't watch this. I know I shouldn't listen to this music, but I'm going to anyways. And I literally have had to ask God in, in, in you know, years. I'm not saying here saying, praise me that I've accomplished this, but I'm convicted. If I ever turn on something that's, that's not right, we've had it where you know, before kids were like maybe a little more loose with the things we watch because there's some funny stuff out there. And then you get kids and you're like, put it on. You're like, oh, I don't remember that part. You're like, well, if I can't watch it with them, we probably shouldn't watch it just you and me. Why? Because we're picking up culture. We're learning. We're following our favorite teachers. When you say, oh, here's my favorite artist, that's a teacher. That's someone you're listening to, someone you're submitting to, someone you're saying, teach me your ways, teach me your truths, teach me your culture. I want to be like you. So there's so much danger in that. And I'll tell you, this is not any praise to us. We've got a lot of other jacked up stuff in our home. Sarah and I have meetings often about how we're probably messing up our kids. But I can tell you, I can tell you there's, there's some things that we're working on. Um, and, and it truly is, what do we put in front of our, our kids? And, and we do not have um, TVD. We, we have Netflix. And so we watch lately Jeopardy. That's been interesting. <laughs> A seven-year-old and a ten-year-old getting into Jeopardy. Our seven-year-old's not as pumped about it. Says, All they do is talk, talk, talk. It's boring. But I refuse to put that stuff in our home. I refuse to let commercials run. I refuse to let the propaganda come into our homes. When I travel, I travel a lot for work. I do not turn on the TV in the hotel at all. Netflix or anything, nothing. It's been years since I've turned on a TV in my hotel room. There's been times where I open my hotel room and they've already got the TV on. First thing I do is I go, turn it off. I don't want that in anymore. There's been times where I used to listen to uh, different music, secular music, and I would say, oh, it's not that bad. I'm a musician. I like to pull from many sources. But I've, over time, realized I start thinking that way. I start, I start getting that in my heart and in my soul. I start feeling, yeah, time to fight, time to, yeah, whatever. And it's like, what? What are you doing? Because you're being that. You're turning into that. And I could preach for hours on this stuff, but it's, it is something we've got to watch. Where are you going to school and who is your favorite teacher? Heading to serving and suffering. Sometimes we try hard to make sense of our suffering, and sometimes there's a paralysis uh, of analysis, right, that we're trying to make sense of it all, and, and in that, sometimes we can be rendered ineffective in our service, but what we've got to do is we can't stop. Um, we can't just let the pain uh, sink in and, 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 and just stop us. Uh, remember, we talked about last week that it was okay to note the suffering, that it's very real, and it, be, and it may be long. It may, it may be the case that salvation delays. And remember that they were sitting there on the ship, and after many days, the sun nor the stars appeared, and all hope was lost. So you may be in suffering, and it's okay to note it, 
say it's real, acknowledge it, but once you've noted it, you've got to move on. You cannot let it keep you from serving God and your fellow man. And I think this is what we see in Paul's case here. So Paul's been through this suffering, <clears throat> and you've seen his, his response to the snake bite. You know, I think that's an interesting thing. What was Paul's response when the snake bit him? What would your response be? You probably too would sit down and say, I'm going to swell up and die any minute now. But Paul's like, ah. And then he goes on about his business, and they're all looking at him like, this guy's crazy. He's not, even, he's not even afraid. His response was calm. He wasn't overcome with fear. But he didn't let any of this stuff stop him. He didn't sit there and pout and, 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 and just lay low. Rather, he served the people of Malta while he stayed the winter on the island. That's what, what he does is he stays the winter here. Months with these people. And during this time, he serves them uh, as he was living as a true servant of God, seeing his ministry as alive and well, even in the face of suffering. Um, and, and we see that in verse 7 through 9. Uh, you see, now in the neighborhood of that place where the lands belonged to the chief man of the island, named Publius, uh, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days, it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hand on him, healed him. And when it had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had disease also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. Do you see that? So he heals this person. He doesn't owe, I mean, he's, he's, he's saying, I've got my own stuff, but I'm not going to stop that. Uh, let that stop me from serving other people. Then all the other people who were sick and had diseases on the island came and they were also cured. Paul didn't plan to go to Malta. It wasn't like Paul and his local church said, hey guys, let's get a mission trip together. We're going to go to Malta. He ends up at Malta. And he's like, here I am. There was no plan. There was no program. He's like, I'm here. God has put me here. Let's get to work. What needs to be done? And it starts with some sticks. Put some sticks in the fire. Literally, he's like, I'm going to get to work. But sometimes we, in our suffering, we forget that there's service, that there's work to be done. And we say, oh, suffering has come upon me. It's like, you know, I planned on mowing the grass today, but here comes the thunderclouds and the storm. I'm not going to do that today. And you absolve yourself from responsibility. It kind of feels good, right, to get that day off. Oh, I can't. Just can't do it. What if I could? Sometimes we look at that in our suffering and we're like, I would. I, no, God, I would. I would totally do that work. But uh, not feeling very good today. Right? I mean, we do that. And we've got to ask ourselves, am I using my suffering as an excuse to not do the work that God has called me to do? Because we are not guaranteed a suffer-free life. Amen. We see that Jesus came to serve and to suffer and we have to have that same heart and serve in our suffering. But I want to close with some application. These things will be on the screen for us to think through. Suffering is a time for action. God will use even our suffering to bring glory to himself. God was glorified in Paul's service. Remember earlier Paul was talking about when he was um, called to the ministry, Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus says, I have appointed you to go do this work. But also the others, when, when the Lord appeared to them and said, hey, there's this guy Paul. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. 
Paul is just living out the ministry God has called him to. He is literally in the will of God every step of the way. And we can't get crossed up and think that every suffering in our life is a form of punishment as if God is punishing us because that is a false view of the gospel. We are literally not believing the gospel when we see that. Number two, it is possible to do good for others even when we are in the midst of trials. Number three, the way we view suffering affects the way we celebrate our joy. Do you know that? If we take the blame for our suffering, we're tempted to take the credit for our joy. If you take all the blame for your suffering, you may take the credit for your joy. Be very careful about that. God may see it fit that you are in suffering for his glory. It has nothing to do with your performance. God sees it fit to glorify himself through suffering servants. Not all suffering is a form of justice. Suffering for the believer is temporary. So I want to have this heart of the gospel is that for the believer, there remains no punishment. There can be natural consequences. That's true. There can be natural consequences. David, natural consequences. But do you see there was no punishment for him? It was not that God came down and crushed him. And, and, and David in Psalm 51, what does he say? He's, he's like, you've washed me clean. You restore me. But we have to realize that if we are believing that God stands ready to punish us when we mess up, we are not believing in the gospel. Because the gospel literally is that Jesus was punished in our place. And God is not a God who takes two payments. He does not take the payment that Jesus bore for us and say, paid in full, it is finished. And then say, "Mm, yeah, but let me get a little extra. All of our sins, every mistake we will ever make for the believer was punished and paid for on the cross. Therefore, there is no punishment that remains for the believer. Does that mean that God will discipline you? Yes. Does that mean God may see it fit to bring trials your way to teach you? Yes. But he will never punish you. And there's a difference between discipline and punishment. All of the punishment due us was paid on the cross and bore by Jesus Christ. So not all suffering is a form of justice. And for the believer, suffering is temporary. Praise God. Because literally what we're looking forward to is the end of all suffering. Even if our suffering here may be very great, the longer we're in eternity, the fainter that suffering will grow. Stand with me and I want to close this morning. The heart of this message this morning is, is, is really that we've got to see our suffering um, in the right light. And to see our suffering as God's punishment is to miss the heart of the gospel. Um, for the believer, as we said, no punishment remains. 
even if a, a child of God is, is, is disciplined by God. So I want us to, to take a few minutes just to think through the suffering we may have in our lives right now. And I want us to see it clearly. I want us to make sense of it. And the first thing that I want you to think through is if you have suffering, I do want you to ask, what part have I played in this? Because it may be that you have suffering in your life that was brought because you made some mistakes and there are natural consequences. And that's not to be taken lightly, but you can recover. You can make steps out of the mess that you're in. And you can pray for God to help you through that. But if you find yourself in suffering and you just can't put any cause of your own into it, pray that God will show you what he's teaching you through it. Because it may be very well the case that he is teaching you through this trial, that he is showing you something. And ask for God to clearly show you that. So, Father, I pray this morning that you help us understand that Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, came to be punished for our sins. And for the believer, there remains no punishment. And may we rejoice in that, God, as we benefit from the gospel, as ones who deserve punishment, have our punishment deferred to Christ and that you took your son who you loved so much and you punished him because you also loved us and from that truth God may we be humbled may we see that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance so Father please let us see our suffering in the correct light that not all suffering is a form of punishment and Father, help us to question the cultural norms and the cultural lies that are there that say karma is out there and the cultural lies that say that you only love us when we perform or the cultural lies that tell us that you really don't have our good in mind. So Father, may we be aware of the truth that cultural narratives drive our beliefs and our behaviors. May we be cautious, Father, to mind what we praise and what we shame, what we punish and permit. May we ever be mindful that if we take the blame for all of our suffering, we may too take the credit for our joy. So Father, this morning, please work in our hearts to see 